Well, hi, Praxis. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I hope you're all doing well. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Alan. I'm one of the interns here at Lighthouse. Uh, even though I personally haven't been to an actual physical Praxis meeting, uh, it's kind of strange, but I miss it. Uh, it may sound weird, but I even miss you guys. Um, and that's because there's just this sense of loss and longing. Um, and I look forward to the day when we will uh, be able to meet face to face and fellowship together in person. But in the meantime, uh, praise God, we can still gather around the scriptures and continue our study in the book of First Peter. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 17 tonight. So let me go ahead and read our passage and then we will pray for our time. First Peter, uh, we're in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Follow along. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. God, we come to a portion in Scripture that is uh, difficult to digest, hard to stomach, because it tells us, it presupposes that we will suffer, that persecution will come as a result of our obedience to Christ. And it is tempting to just shiver, to shrivel up and cower. But Lord, we pray that you would cause our hearts uh, to burst with confidence and joy, not in our own strength and abilities, but in you, in the one we have believed and entrusted our lives to, that Christ would be more valuable and precious to us than all that could come our way. Oh Lord, we pray that your word would pierce our hearts that it would shape our minds, that it would inform the ways that we live, that you would be pleased and honored, and that we might be joyful in Christ. And so use uh, the teaching of your word to edify your saints, to equip us for the work of the ministry, uh, Lord, that you may be exalted in our lives, in our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I do not know him. The little girl looks closer at the guy and says to those around her, no, 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 this man was with the Nazarene. And so for a second time, he reiterates, I do not know the man. Well, that doesn't prevent the bystanders from approaching and announcing, certainly you are one of them. So what does the apostle do? Peter swears to them, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The rooster crows, and Peter the rock crumbles into pieces, weeping. His failure is apparent. His guilt overwhelms him. Now, this is the guy who writes what we just read in 1 Peter chapter 3. Someone who skirted suffering to save his own skin. 
to spare himself a little embarrassment before a small servant girl and a group of strangers. Someone who talked all big in front of other disciples about not forsaking Jesus only to abandon him now in his greatest hour of need. Instead of defending Jesus, Peter denies him. You know the story well. And you would think such a person would be the last candidate qualified to pen our verses for tonight. So what's changed? Once so proud to be called the rock, Peter has been humbled, broken and rebuilt now upon God's stone. As we studied back in chapter 2, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And listen here, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Shame is not the end of the apostle's story. Redemption is. Redemption is his epilogue, his ever after, if you will. In the last chapter of John's gospel, the thrice-denying disciple is restored threefold by Jesus Christ. And from there, the lesson is not only recorded in the pages of Scripture, it is written on Peter's heart. It's why this fallen sinner can humbly commission his words to us. Learn from my mistakes. Stay the course. Seek his kingdom. Suffer well. Now at the forefront, we need to qualify this kind of suffering. It's not a result of your sin, your blunders. It's not a suffering because of a difficulty God providentially brings into your life, like cancer. Peter is talking, actually, about persecution. He's writing to believers who are on the run, who are dispersed, if you recall, because they're being hunted, sought out for their faith to Christ. And we come to really the heartbeat of this letter, the main occasion and theme of this epistle, just as we've called our study in the book of 1 Peter, Hope for Suffering Sojourners. And this topic of suffering has been looming in the background, but now Peter addresses it head on. Peter writes to teach and comfort his afflicted readers, to add steel to their backbones so that they might not equivocate like he did. No, but so that they would stand firm as Christians, even in the face of persecution. Peter equips them and us with two truths that we can brandish in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. First, we're able to suffer well as Christians by looking to God's promises. And second, we are able to suffer well by living out God's purposes. So first, we can suffer well as Christians by looking to God's promises. Verse 13, look again in your Bibles. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Okay, what is Peter getting at here? You know, is he asking a rhetorical question because the answer is so obvious? Well, in some sense, yes. Usually, if you're doing good, you don't expect someone to hurt you. You know, if, normally, if you had to pick between a good person and a bad person, you would assume the guy who does bad is the one who's going to invite a beating. And while that is generally true, we know that it's not always the case. The world isn't black and white. 
Life isn't fair. Sometimes the wicked do floor. Sometimes the righteous are harmed. Ideally, suffering for righteousness, it shouldn't happen, but it does. So how are we to reconcile this as believers? Well, Peter launches us above the clouds. While justice isn't guaranteed here on earth, we take comfort in knowing that in the end, God will right every wrong. That's why we can suffer well. Because we're not looking for vindication here, but in the final judgment. We don't hope in men. We place our hope in the one who reigns above. This is where Peter is directing our eyes. If we back up to where we left off last week in verse 12, he writes this, quoting a psalm. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see how the apostle is lifting our gaze? If we set our sights on our suffering, on our persecution, only on what's going on around us, if we simply look at the present and the horizontal level, we're bound to be frustrated by our suffering, scared of our persecution, because we forget God. Sure, opponents of the cross may call you dumb or a bigot, try to get you fired from your job because of your allegiance to Christ, They may seek to harm you and maybe even succeed to a certain degree now, but not forever. Not when God calls all things into account. You see, we're talking about ultimates here. That ultimately, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's right here in the text. The Lord opposes those who do evil, but God's ears are open to the cries of his people. God's eyes are on his people. Are your eyes on him? Peter is pushing us to adopt an eternal perspective. To allow the promises of God to inform your circumstances. To interpret your situation. To make you bold when persecuted. The scriptures are clear. You know, in this life, suffering comes with the territory of following Jesus. But therein lies the key. It's just in this life, not the one to come. Are you playing the long game? Because you're banking your life on the word of God, on his promises. People may bruise our egos, may bruise our bodies, may rob us of our possessions. But as Peter has declared in chapter 1, Beloved, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Draw strength in what God has vowed. Our troubles and pains in this life, yes, they're very real. I don't want to minimize that. It hurts. It hurts when non-Christians mock you about your faith. It sucks when you're passed up for the promotion because of your devotion to Jesus. Our sufferings rest heavy on our hearts. They may weigh us down, but friends balance them in the scales of God's promises. In the grand scheme of eternity, Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls them light and momentary. Why? Because of what we trade them in for. 
This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's why we don't lose heart. That's why no harm can ultimately be done against us. That's why we can agree with Peter as he writes verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Look, I'd be lying to you if I told you the Christian road is the easy road. It's not. It's hard. In the words of Jesus, it's narrow, but it's worth it because he's there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Or in a word, this could be summed up as blessed. Now, there's a punchiness here in the Greek. For emphasis, it literally reads, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed. Why? When we suffer for righteousness' sake on the outside, it shows us his righteousness has laid hold of us on the inside. In these moments, our suffering is a sign of salvation, that his promises have gripped our hearts and transformed our lives and made a distinction that invites persecution from unbelievers. It can assure us that we are actually walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And there, as we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are reminded of our true blessing. For following Jesus, for suffering for righteousness' sake, it may very well cost you your friends at work, relationships in your family, but how blessed it is to be a child of God, to be brought into the family of Christ. For following Jesus, for suffering for righteousness' sake, you may forfeit a bonus or be kicked out of your house, but how blessed it is to inherit the kingdom of heaven, to know that the Son goes to prepare a place for you. For following Jesus, for suffering for righteousness' sake, you may stunt your career or, God forbid, even lose your life. But how blessed it is to gain Christ, to be found in him, to have a righteousness that you're willing to suffer for because by this very righteousness, you have life, true and eternal life, life abundantly. Beloved, never forget who you are. We are suffering sojourners. This place is not our home. This world is not our hope. So we look to another and trust in his promises. And whether harm comes or not, our hearts are given over to our Lord and Savior. And Peter continues in verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do you see that contrast? How Peter is pitting the fear of others against honoring Christ as Lord. The two sit on opposite ends of a seesaw, if you will. When we fear men and allow potential suffering and trouble, free reign, well then Christ is made small in our minds and hearts. But when he's big, when our soul rejoices and exalts in Christ, when we esteem him as Lord, well, perfect love casts out fear. And Thomas Chalmers calls this the expulsive power of a new affection. 
that our fear of man and love for their approval is ejected because we have been approved in Christ. Therefore, we fear God's displeasure because we love him. We love the one who would first love us fiercely and fully. I love how simple and practical this is. The secret, the secret to combating our fear, whether we cave into persecution or suffer well, well, it all hangs on loving Jesus more, on setting him apart as supreme in our hearts. This is the linchpin of the Christian life. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. You see, we're all willing to suffer for what we deem and see as valuable to us. We submit to diet restrictions and the burn of cardio because we're set on slimming down, being toned. We take criticism, even unfair criticism, from our superiors, from our bosses and teachers, and put in overtime, put in the hard work because we're set on succeeding, on climbing the corporate ladder. And when Christ is more precious, when we look to God's promises and linger over the gospel, well, Jesus ascends his throne and sits on the seat of our hearts, our affections, our actions. And when he does, we not only trust him in our suffering, in our persecution, but it transforms also how we handle them. We transition now to the second truth we cling to. And as Christians, we suffer well. We, we endure persecution by living out God's purposes. Secondly, we suffer well by living out God's purposes. And I think sometimes we equate suffering well with mere survival, right? You know, if I can just make it to the other side of this without forsaking my faith, well, then I'll chalk it up as a victory. Now, perseverance is definitely a part of suffering well, but it's not the only component. Don't become so absorbed with putting up with persecution that you miss what God is doing in you, that you miss what God is doing around you. As Elizabeth Elliot has said, suffering is never for nothing. Christian, we don't just grit our teeth and endure abuse and harassment from the world. We live out God's purposes in our suffering. And one of the purposes is highlighted here in verse 15 says, transitioning from the last section, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. We'll stop there. What's interesting is the construction of this verse, the flow. The apostle doesn't stop or take a break. It's actually very smooth and seamless. Quite woodenly, Let's honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, ready always to make a defense. And that's insightful, revealing to us. Because it shows us there is an unbreakable connection, an expected outcome that follows. When you honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, you will be prepared to make a defense. Which is telling, which teaches us the best way to be ready is to revel in Jesus. Our devotion to him naturally produces a defense. Now, defense is the word apologia. 
excuse me, <coughs> apologion, from which we derive the words apology, apologetics. Immediately, I bet we picture heated debates or philosophical arguments. Maybe we think of a book we read like Case for Christ or gathering all the historical and logical evidence to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened. Maybe the word evokes and creates a legal setting in our minds where we imagine ourselves behind the bench on trial having to give a defense, give a defense for our faith and why we believe what we believe. And sure, this word may encompass some of that, but it's not only that. The apostle is broadening the scope because making a defense doesn't only happen in the courtroom. I mean, here, Peter generalizes the scenario by using general words. Always. Anyone who asks. Those are the only requirements for when this command comes into play. We are to live out God's purposes in suffering well in persecution, regardless of the situation. Whether we find ourselves in the courtroom, in the classroom, in the locker room, in the conference room, in the dining room, anywhere and everywhere. The only qualification is that someone is curious enough to ask. To ask us about our distinction, about how and why we suffer as Christians. And more than scaring you, I hope these verses encourage and challenge you. I know it does for me. This verse isn't reserved for those with a philosophy major or an apologetic bent. You don't have to be the next Tim Keller or Ravi Zacharias. In fact, First Peter is written to people in the first century who, for the most part, couldn't even read. But you know what they could do? You know what you could do? You can speak. You can give reason. That when occasion arises, someone asks you why you are calm and gracious to those who belittle you for your convictions, why you work with integrity when everyone else is cutting corners and pressuring you to do the same, why you still pray before lunch even though others mock and laugh at you, why you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're ready to tell them. Persecution can prop open the door to give you an in, to provide you an opportunity to give reason. And it doesn't have to be anything elaborate or polished. Reason here is quite literally logon, logos, a word. Don't worry about being eloquent or a great public speaker. Just speak. If you've been saved, if you understand the gospel, if you are a Christian, then at bare minimum, you know enough to tell someone about Jesus, to share the gospel of salvation, to give reason for the hope that is in you. If you're not confident, well, there's so many resources to train you, to equip you. You have the Two Ways to Live gospel tract, or you can participate in Christianity Explored so that you can be better suited to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice how precise Peter is here. Give reason for the hope that is in you. He doesn't tell us to give reason for the love that is in you or the joy that is in you. He charges us to be ready to give reason for the hope that is in you. 
Hope is the form of faith when facing death. And how applicable and true today in the midst of the season we're in, in the face of COVID-19. You see, in times of suffering, especially, people are looking for hope. Even those who oppose you, even those who oppose the things of God. And in times of suffering, we have a hope the world knows nothing of. This time of coronavirus has made that incredibly apparent. You know, God has his purposes for this terrifying pandemic. Perhaps as a blessing in disguise, people, more than usual, are searching for hope. They are asking to hear an answer. Why? Because all that the world comes up with, has offered, is shallow, rings hollow. And we've seen and felt this. We know this by experience. The false security of money is crippled. The market is crashing. Savings have been depleted. The false security of health is stripped. The virus is no respecter of persons. Everyone is vulnerable. Death count continues to rise. The false security of the future is exposed. People have been laid off, put on furlough. Plans for education, marriage, and vacation have been altered or canceled. If there's anything the coronavirus has taught us, it's that we're not as strong or sovereign as we thought. We're not in control. We're weak. Our lives are fragile. But Christian, we know something. We know someone better. Our confidence is sure. Our hope is a living hope. A hope worth suffering for. A hope worth sharing. I love how one scholar puts it. Peter shows us that our hope provides both the courage for our witness and the content of our witness. Our hope is in our risen Lord. We sanctify the Lord Christ in our hearts. There is the end of fear. And we sanctify Christ in our words. There is the start of witness. End quote. And so we suffer and share. But we must administer the good news in God's way. Look again at verse 15. It says, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet be careful. Make sure you do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Now let's break this down. First, gentleness and respect. The word for respect is one we've encountered before. It's the same word translated fear back in verse 14. And I think that's actually more helpful and accurate for us. We are to give reason with gentleness and fear. So how does that work? Well, gentleness we get, but fear? Who are we supposed to fear? Clearly not people, as Peter has already explained in verse 14. We do not fear them. No, we are to fear God. And this is why gentleness and fear are paired together. When Maddie, my daughter, knows I'm watching her, it affects how she treats her younger brother. Under my small but all-seeing eye, she's not harsh. Or bossy. Well, not super bossy. She's not trying to manipulate or trick her brother. Why? Because she knows I'm there. Her dad is present. 
Her father is observing her actions. And there is an appropriate fear, a parental reverence that shapes her behavior towards Everett, her treatment of her younger brother. And so this dynamic is to characterize our interactions with others. We live quorum Deo in the presence of God. And out of an appropriate fear for our Heavenly Father, a reverence for Him, we obey. We're tender-hearted to people because when we actually consider who we are before God, it humbles us. Look, we're no better than those asking for a reason. Because if you recall, we once asked too. And so we're gentle. The gospel truth has changed us so thoroughly, it touches even our treatment of others. That's why in verse 16, we have a good conscience. There's consistency in our lives. We don't just talk about the grace of God. We're gracious. Our intentions is backed up with our integrity. Even when things up, even when hounded or harmed, we prove we aren't fool's gold. We're legit. As Christians, we live in good conscience. And when we do, then their conscience is pricked. That as others see your gentleness, they see the gentleness of Christ. That as people marvel at your love for Jesus and your love for others, they are won over to the loveliness of Jesus himself. That as they are told of the hope you have in Christ, they are persuaded to place their hope in him as well. Message received because it matches. Both the message and the manner are important. Yes, contend for the faith, but don't be contentious about it. There's such a thing as winning arguments but losing souls. I mean, the gospel message, if you think about it, is offensive enough. Let's not add our own offenses. But it's when we give them no reason for their sin but their sin that they are convinced. They are confronted and convicted by it, which is how our passage finishes at the end of verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now these verses are pretty straightforward. When you remove any basis for being reviled, well, the blame can land nowhere else but upon their own shoulders. That's why we need to check, first and foremost, that we're not suffering, we're not persecuted because we're being dumb and sinful. Like someone is hating on us because we're lazy or we said something stupid. No, but when there's no grounds, when there's no reason for their insults and hate, when our good and godly behavior in Christ leaves no excuse for their slander, well, then it's to their shame. Then the evil they commit is unquestionably theirs, and their sin becomes the sword they fall upon. Now, the great 18th century evangelist George Whitfield traveled from city to city, country to country, heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. And along the way, unsurprisingly, he met his share of opponents. 
people who try to discourage him and hinder his gospel ministry. In fact, there was a group that would essentially follow Whitfield wherever he would go, just to be a thorn in his side. And they would show up to all his speaking engagements to spew lies about him, to talk over him while he was preaching. And they were so notorious, they were called the Hellfire Club. I know it sounds kind of cool, but it's not. But on one occasion, one of them, a man named Thorpe, stood up to ridicule Whitfield as usual. And Thorpe kept patronizing Whitfield to his buddies and to the gathered crowd, imitating Whitfield's arm movements, his gestures, his facial expressions, his intonation. But in the middle of this mockery, something miraculous happened. As he was mimicking the message being preached, as he was slandering Whitfield, he was put to shame. God intervened, and Thorpe was cut to the core. His sin was apparent to him in how he was belittling Whitfield. But also, and hear this, his Savior was apparent in the very message he was repeating, he was parodying. And there, convicted and converted on the spot. We might think those kinds of crazy stories are reserved for the Christian superstars like Whitfield. But that's to misplace our focus. That's to forget where the power lies. In our suffering and really in all of life, we're to be faithful in living out God's purposes. He'll take care of the rest. And God called Whitfield to suffer well for righteousness' sake and share the gospel. And then God called Thorpe to that same righteousness, to salvation. Someone once summarized the Christian life as living a lifestyle that demands an explanation. Living a lifestyle that demands an explanation. I like that. I think it summarizes our passage so well that as Christians, we suffer for righteousness' sake, even persecution, when we look to God's promises and we cherish them so fully, honoring Christ as holy, that we're different from the world. We live out His purposes. And what are His purposes? That by living so distinctly, it provokes people to ask and to hear our explanation. Wasn't this what Jesus modeled for us? As we will see next time in verse 18, just glance really quickly. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And when we look at Jesus, it all crystallizes for us. And Jesus, silent before the chief priests, before Pilate, before the jeers and taunts, Jesus bearing his cross so he could bear our shame so that even those who slandered him might receive salvation. He refuses to defend himself. In fact, he's persecuted all the way up a wooden tree and there he can declare, it is finished. And I love what happens right at the foot of the cross. Do you remember who's there? There's this Roman centurion an unbeliever. And he watches Jesus 
throughout the whole thing, Jesus suffering, persecuted, put to death. And what is the Roman centurion conclusion? Well, he's left with no other option. He confesses with his lips. I've never seen anything like this before. This man must be the son of God. And so we follow in Jesus' footsteps. Let us live a lifestyle that demands an explanation, that gives an answer, that says something better than suffering and shame, that preaches our living hope, Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. God, we marvel at Christ. Lord, we see him, his composure, uh, in the midst of persecution, in the face of so many enemies. Lord, he did not falter. He did not strike back when he was struck. But Lord, he embodied grace, love, kindness, your justice even. And Lord, because of him, Lord, we don't need to vindicate ourselves. Uh, Lord, but we need to only be faithful. And so God, help us, give us strength to be faithful. Encourage us with your word that no suffering goes unseen. But Lord, your eyes are upon the righteous. And Lord, you uh, are doing something amazing through something so apparently evil that you can use persecution of your saints to draw people to yourself, to bring others to a saving faith in Jesus Christ that they might have hope beyond this world, hope that we rejoice in, hope that will carry us through because it is a living hope, it is a hope in the resurrected King, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So may we set him apart and honor him as holy in our hearts. And may you be pleased. We ask that your word will continue to circulate in our hearts, that it might bleed over to our hands and feet, and affect and change our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.